What's on everyone? Taylor Cowles here for CLNS Media, coming at you with another episode of Pat's Daily, brought to you by our friends at FanDuel Sportsbook. More on them later. It is Monday, which means it's a mailbag with the offseason happening. We can actually do mailbags on a Monday. But before we get into your very good questions, we got a lot of stuff to catch up on. All right. So over the weekend, we got some movement on the Patriots staff. We had a hiring. We got some news about potential hirings. And we also uh, added a couple more names to the interview. 11 offensive candidate coordinators, offensive coordinator candidates. That's a fun one. The Patriots are now up to. To help me break it down and get through all this, I've enlisted the help of CLNS family member and member of the Boston Herald, Andrew Callahan. Andrew, how are you, buddy? What's up, man? Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. All right. So like I mentioned, it's been a pretty busy weekend for the Patriots. The biggest news that we got was Demarcus Covington to be the newest defensive coordinator for the Patriots. This one wasn't a really big surprise. He seemed like the most deserving candidate uh, already. All the work he's done with that defensive line, the best position group on the roster, the development of Christian Barmore, a lot of positives from him. So now he finally gets his shot. What were your thoughts when you heard about the hiring? Thought <laughs> About time. Uh, you know, I, I said this on my pod last Friday. I just didn't know what was taking so long. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's reason to panic or freak out or throw up a flare. It's just to say he's been sense all along. Uh, he shares an agent with Mayo. He's an excellent rising head coach, had coordinator interviews last year, did an excellent job by all accounts at the senior bowl, X's and O's command of the room, connecting with players, basically has everything. So you also just st- look at this from the standpoint of you don't have many coaches promoted internally to a head coach position who suddenly want to change everything on day one like they want to keep Mm -hmm. their system in place they want to coach what they know with the people that they know so demarcus whether you look at his profile as just a young coach and his recent experience or the players he's developed or the fact that gerard is now his boss and they used to work together this made sense all along absolutely so we've also heard that bill belichick probably not gonna land a job with the team this season which means a lot of people on the Patriots staff could end up being retained. Now, that said, we did hear that uh, I think Albert Breer reported this morning that they could still hire some type of senior advisor to help with DeMarcus Covington because he's still a very young coach. I know we mentioned Christian Parker, the Broncos secondaries coach, who's also very young but seen as a riser in the NFL. So I'm curious, how do you think DeMarcus Covington staying is going to affect the staff? Also, Michael Hodges, someone they've been linked to, co-defensive coordinator with uh, Covington when they were at Eastern Illinois. Do you see any guy? that you really think are going to be added to the staff? Do you think there may be be some changes? People that are there now, maybe going to be in different roles or no longer there. How do you think this all works out? Well, I think if they do go with the senior advisor role, and Mike Reese has mentioned this a couple of times, he's also in-house. Steve Belichick, who's not going to be calling plays most likely anymore. He's not going to be your defensive coordinator, obviously, but he's someone who has spent, again, all of his life since 2000, since Bill moved the family to New England, right here. It's where he's worked. It's where he's grown up. It's where he started a very small family. And the same holds true for Brian. But Steve has more experience than Brian. He has more experience than Gerard coaching the system, certainly more than DeMarcus. So I think if they wanted to go the advisor route, you might need to smooth over some in-house. I don't want to say politics that strong, but just some adjustment. These are the roles. These are the responsibility. This is the pecking order. If you want to stay, get used to it or help us negotiate where we're all comfortable here. Uh, aside from that, you know, Christian Parker is a name that I think – could earn a title where we know Gerard feels very differently than Bill did about titles, right? You know, how do you pull him away? We'll give him a pass game coordinator title. He's worked in the secondary. Mm -hmm. He's a rising young coach, at least on the outside, as someone who probably, if he comes to New England, won't be here for more than a couple of years because he's getting coordinator interviews elsewhere. You know, make it seem like he's getting a promotion on the way up the ladder as opposed to just 
well, why wouldn't he just stay in Denver, especially as a sought after coach? So, yeah, I could see one of the two. Hodges seems to me as another riser, uh, probably can pick his spots. He's, you know, been in the league a little bit longer than Parker. Uh, but I think it would behoove the Patriots to get some new blood in here, not only obviously on offense, but on defense, too. It's been interesting as we project all these different titles now that we're actually using them. The Patriots usually when they did kind of have the titles on the website, it's just cornerbacks coach, secondaries coach. It'll be interesting to see. Do they go with their secondary rather than safeties and cornerbacks? Do they, you know, like the uh, the advisor rules where they haven't really had those much before. And then going into even like a pass game coordinator. I've noticed you see it all over the league where, you know, other teams, especially on bigger staffs, they get a little bit more finite in different things that we haven't really seen with the Patriots. So, it kind of ties into the next candidate that we heard about, Nick Cayley. Now, it was reported by Mike Reese that he seems like he's going to end up being the favorite to get the Patriots offensive coordinator job. We've also seen guys like Josh McDaniels link. They haven't had an interview with him yet, but the name has been floated around. I know Jeff Howe mentioned on your podcast last week that Josh McDaniels is somebody who could shoot up potentially. But Nick Haley's the first guy on the offensive coordinator circuit who's actually come in for a second interview. So he's kind of a guy I feel like people don't know a ton about because, you know, tight ends coaches, they don't get a lot of credit. But there's a pattern where a lot of the offensive coordinators the Patriots have brought in are guys with tight ends experience. So what do you think about Kaylee as a candidate? Is he someone that excites you? Do you not really like the idea of bringing in someone who already has such close ties? And also, do you think that him, you know, basically going out sabbatical with the Rams was enough time for him to be able to bring a lot of the things from the McVay system that people really want to see them integrate and kind of give them a blend of old and new? Yeah, so there's a lot there. Uh, but I want to start back at the last question, too, because something just hit me as far as we talk about titles, right? And some people think they're important like others don't when they're built. It's interesting to me that the titles were really the genesis of Gerard's career here, where they created a position for him as inside linebackers coach in 2019, not a job that had been filled in the years prior, just to get him on staff. And back in those days, it wasn't just Gerard coming in to plug a hole in the defensive staff. But as you mentioned, cornerbacks and safeties meeting together, that changed that offseason. Because it was Mike Pellegrino, a very young uh, corners coach, was meeting with Steve Belichick, who then was coaching the safeties. So they did have different positions, but they were all in the same room at the same time, coaching the same things. And so whoever you want to slice it up, it's just interesting that, you know, sometimes they don't matter. That's how Gerard got in the door in the first place, creating a whole job for him as the fastest rising assistant ever under Belichick. And now if you want to expand the staff, just go a step further to pull these guys in. And even though they might be doing the same things as a traditional defensive backs coach, like this is a, a tool that can be used in the hiring process for a job that might not seem uh, as appealing as it once was under the greatest coach of all time and with the greatest quarterback of all time in-house. That being said, Nick Haley, um, he and I actually have a, a I don't want to say a connection. It's, it's, it's a little looser than that, but I covered Joe Moorhead, who is the offensive coordinator at Penn State when he was there in 2016, 2017. Great years for Penn State. They had Saquon Barkley. They had Mike Kosicki. They had Chris Godwin. They had me on the beat. And Joe Moorhead was one of the first people to hire. Yeah. Uh, Nick Cayley, when he was a low-level assistant at Akron, where Joe Moorhead has since gone back and been the head coach. And so I reached out to Joe after coming here and said, hey, you know, I, I know this guy used to work under you. What do you think? Asked Nick vice versa. It was a flower bouquet tossing both ways. So for people who work with him back when he first got into coaching or players I've since talked to who worked under him or guys on staff that I've spoken to about him, I'll say the same few things. He's exceptionally hardworking. He's bright. And he's understanding. So he doesn't come from the old school of just going to Bray, you're going to do this, and this is why. I think the question is, as good as he's been as a tight ends coach, and I do think the experience under McVay is valuable. Now, one year is very different. Like, say, your freshman year in college versus when you leave, you know, as a, uh, you know, a senior. 
to installing a new system. I don't think he could do that with all the minutia. But a coordinator job, just like when you go from coordinator to head coach, head coach is much more administrative. I, I make the analogy all the time. That's the principle of the school. You're doing the hiring, the organizing, the vision setting. Okay, you're not making the lesson plans and doing the teaching day to day like a teacher would. But when you're a teacher, it's different than being kind of like the TA where you can do some of the grading or the research or a little bit of the lesson plans. But you don't have to be there at the front of the room saying, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. Oh, and if you don't do what I say, I get to hand down the discipline. So my question is about Nick, clearly a very good TA in this kind of position coach world. When you need to go to the front of the room, you need to handle quarterbacks. You need to handle the whole entire offense and things don't go so well. We just don't know because he's never coached quarterbacks. He's never called plays. He's never been a coordinator. It doesn't mean he's not deserving or he doesn't have that potential. But I think it's telling that he not only got passed over last year by Bill Belichick, but unofficially in 2022, when he was sitting there waiting, longest tendered offensive assistant, again, someone I think is a good, good coach. And Bill passed him over for Matt Patricia and Joe Judge, and we all know that was a mistake. So I just, I'm curious about that aspect, because if you're the Patriots, I think you want someone with coordinator experience or experience coaching quarterbacks. Nick doesn't have either, but he also, as you alluded to, might be able to split the difference between, we'll keep the good stuff that we used to do, but evolve it, modernize it with the Ram stuff, which oddly enough, what Nick did for Sean McVay last year when they went away from all this outside zone traditional boot stuff and became much more mm-hmm. of a duo power running team out there and went from a bottom 10 scoring offense to top 10 this year. Yep. And he's got a unique perspective, too, especially one working under McVay. They kind of followed similar career paths where they were assistants. Tight ends coaches for a while under brilliant offensive minds. Obviously, I do not want to try to insinuate that Kaylee is going to become the next Sean McVay. But again, with the value of a tight ends coach, you know, Zach Robinson would have been a great hire, obviously. Pass game coordinator, which is really just right below offensive coordinator in a lot of ways, and quarterbacks coach. If you're going to bring in a rookie quarterback, you'd like to have that dynamic. But Kaylee worked in both the pass game and the run game, which, again, is a unique perspective. You don't always get on the offense side of the ball if you're coaching receivers or you're coaching quarterbacks. And then when you talk about the McVay system, one of the biggest staples is making pass look like run and vice versa, where you really don't know what's happening. And then a big part of that is motion and understanding what's the idea behind it. You, you know, motion is great. It's, it's really nice if you're top 10 in the league when it comes to those ratings and everything, but what's the purpose of it? And can you use it to sequence plays and do that efficiently? So I'm really interested to see if he does get the opportunity, how he's able to take the knowledge he got from that tight ends role and then incorporate it and say, okay, we are going to have a vision and I understand how we're going to be able to build these concepts on top of each other. There's obviously always going to be the road bumps where your first year play caller, you don't know what you don't know. It's the same thing with Gerard Mayo, but they've also alluded to the fact that Josh McDaniels or someone else, not necessarily McDaniels, but someone else could come on as a senior offensive advisor. So if you have anything to add on to that, please. And as well, is there anybody that you think would fit in that senior advisor role? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think, too, the other part of this is, you know, not who would necessarily be above and not in terms of power, but title, senior advisor, right. someone older who's looking over the whole operation. Who's going to be underneath Nick Cayley if he gets hired? Because if you're Nick Cayley, let's say the job even gets offered to you, there are things you need to consider, one of which is salary. And I am not aboard this train at the caboose. I'm not near the conductor of people think the crafts are cheap and that's really a big issue. They are dead last in as far as cash spending on the roster. But coaching, let's see this play out when they need to hire a candidate pool. If people keep turning them down, to me, that might be a red flag, but I'm not there yet. So there's the salary part. The second part would be, who does he get to hire? And does he get to hire anyone? Or is this going to be a case when Bill O'Brien came in and Bill says, you get one hire, 
that's it. And you have to deal with a staff that I already have in place who come from different backgrounds and philosophies and levels of experience. Or does Nick get to take the RAM staff with him? Because if I'm him installing a new system, which will require teaching and buy-in and problem solving early on, I want guys who have been in Los Angeles longer than I have and who are generally under me. I don't know the answers to those questions. Nick might be finding out right now if they offer him at the end of a second interview, which is supposedly wrapping up today. So that's where my question is. And that then would in turn answer your question of who's the senior advisor. And I want to say like, because I brought this up on my podcast and wrote about it last Wednesday. And I don't want to say I had buyer's remorse saying, hey, blind resume test, Josh McDaniel should be the favorite here, right? Like him, Kaylee and Zach Robinson, he's developed quarterbacks, been a coordinator, wants to be in New England. Um, I got some pushback internally from the league about that pretty quickly, but I would just say this, if he's willing to take a backseat, like we talked about with Steve Belichick, mm-hmm. it's hard to argue against just that resume part. The resume isn't everything. Old dynamics mm-hmm. are hard to let go of and evolve and go with. And Drive might want nothing to do with Josh McDaniels, but I think the salary part and who coaches under Kaylee, if he indeed is hired, is really key because if he doesn't get enough power and or money, he just might say no. And you mentioned him filling out his staff. There's also the question of, is he going to be able to get those guys? One, you got to pry them away from a Rams team that really looks like they're getting it together with a lot of young players. So the development's there. You're kind of intrigued where we can keep this thing going and be even better next year. But also you got to compete with Atlanta now. They got Raheem Morris. They got Zach Robinson. It's going to be tough to sell New England. Like you mentioned, if they're not willing to shell out the cash, that's going to be a really, really tough one. Even if you say, hey, we've got a top three pick, we've got all this money. Like, I'm looking at free agency right now, and I'm thinking, <laughs> like, last night I tweeted, I'll admit, that was it was a little bit of the um, the uh, high noons got to me, where I was like, throw a bag at Saquon Barkley. But in all <laughs> seriousness, you look at the offensive weapons available, and you start thinking, all right, a lot of these guys are probably going to get franchise tag. So who really are you going to bring in in terms of a veteran playmaker who at least at that point you can go into the draft and say, all right, we've got a solid stable of guys that we really trust. So it's going to be interesting. But moving on off Kaylee to a couple other candidates for the offensive coordinator job, we got a couple Nepo babies in the house. <laughs> we got Clint Kubiak, son of Gary Kubiak, and Scott Turner, the son of Norv Turner, who I think Kubiak already had his interview and Scott Turner is supposed to be meeting with the team soon. What were your thoughts on them? Because these are another couple of guys where that outside zone system that we obviously always connect with Shanahan, although like McVay, he's incorporated a lot more gap schemes. And I think people realize where he's had to force to adapt because in the NFL, you're not going to be able to run the same scheme constantly every year and not make changes and still be effective as they are. So what did you think about these two guys, especially Kubiak is someone who worked under Sean McVay? I mean, well, let's, Kyle Shanahan. Well. Yeah, let's start specifically <laughs> with them, because I, I think the longer this search goes on, there's a bigger picture question that needs to be explored and answered. And look, if Nick Cayley gets hired tomorrow, that question is answered. It's moot. It doesn't matter. But um, starting with Clint Kubiak, you know, I, I obviously like the experience of San Francisco, four straight NFC championships. You know, Kyle Shanahan is, is the god of offense right now in the NFL. He's also coached quarterbacks, did so in Minnesota, where his three years before they hired Kevin O'Connell, they were top 14 in scoring offense every single year. So two big boxes checked. Coach quarterbacks, been a coordinator, and done a fine job. Now, last year with Russell Wilson in Denver, absolute disaster. But I would argue that probably starts with the guy at the top, Nathaniel Hackett. Um, Skyler, I'm less enthused about because his years, again, three years as an offensive coordinator, those were in Washington from 2020 to 2022. They never cracked higher than 23rd in scoring on offense. So that's a bottom 10 offense every single year. Lack of development at quarterbacks. And I'm glad you brought up the Nepple babies part because people freak out about Stephen Brian Belichick, who objectively had done good jobs in New England. Granted, nepotism not great anywhere. Nepotism is unique 
to New England. Okay, this has been around in the NFL as long as the NFL has been around. One could even say it's a pretty big problem. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, But zooming out where I like the Clint Kubiak, Scott Turner, whatever, you're looking at now candidates 10 and 11. And this is not a one-for-one analogy, and I would encourage a deep and thorough search, especially for an important job like this for Gerard Mayo. Mm -hmm. But I would compare it to how many people do you need to go and see and date when you are seriously ready to settle down? And at what point when you get on person number 10 or 11 – Does it become you and not them? Because the longer this search goes on, and if Kaylee, let's say, is offered the job and doesn't accept, and we don't know that yet, then that's an issue with New England, where I don't know if it's their inability to sell the job and the cap space and the draft pick, or it's a salary issue. And again, I understand I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's there's a balance here of enough candidates to do a thorough search, but also wondering, okay, do you know what you want? Are you getting what you want? And if not, what's your plan B? Because we're getting closer to that with each passing day. 11 is more candidates than I would have expected. But if Gerard is also treating this search like Belichick did a year ago as a way to gather intel and trade ideas and maybe recruit for some position coaches, that's a good use of it. So I'm not worried yet. But if we get to 15 candidates, like people were clowning the Falcons for that long of a search. <laughs> and I don't think they're so certain that they might have hired the best guy, even though they talked to more people than anybody else. Yeah, that's an interesting one, because I've seen a lot of pushback online from people saying like, all right, I'm getting sick of this. Choose somebody. And there is the one side where you're like, you understand, Gerard Mayo, he wants to be thorough. This is somebody who doesn't really, again, doesn't know what he doesn't know, probably just wants to hear from a lot of different minds who've had success. You know, even Scott Turner, he did have success with Cam Newton in 2018 before he ended up hurting his shoulder. And that just essentially derailed his entire career. So you kind of want to see, all right, different systems, different experiences, also the Nepo baby thing, like their dads still, there is that influence. Their dads are Super Bowl winning coaches. So there is some value there if you want to kind of just see where their perspectives are. But I do like your point where at some point you have to think, okay, maybe it's just not them being thorough. Maybe it's they're not really getting the reception they want either. That's going to wrap up the recap part of the show. We're going to get to the mailbag. But first, quick word from our friends at FanDuel. We'll be back. Happy Super Bowl to all who celebrate from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. FanDuel has so many ways for you to end the season with a W. Not only can you bet on who will win Super Bowl 58, but FanDuel also has bets which players will score a touchdown, how many points will be scored, and so much more. New customers join today and you get $200 in bonus bets if your first bet of $5 or more wins. Just visit FanDuel.com slash Boston to sign up. That's FanDuel.com slash Boston. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 plus and present in Massachusetts. Hope is here. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support. Play it smart from the start. GameSenseMA.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234. All right, now let's dive into some of these mailbag questions. First up, Pats are on the clock at number three. Jaden Daniels and Drake May are available. Who do you select? This one I feel like it's just almost required for any mailbag. I like to get different perspectives, so what's yours? So my default answer, Taylor, has been 
hey, the draft's three months away, right? But now that we are inside of three months, I can't say that anymore. Go ahead, I haven't watched it. <laughs> but that second part is still true. I have not really taken a deep dive. And I know you've had a lot of great conversations with folks who know more about quarterback play than I do. Look, I, I would just say, if you're a Patriots fan right now, my answer doesn't matter on January 29th. What does matter is you can probably take good comfort in the fact that this is a three-quarterback conversation now or has become in the last month or two when we were going through most of this season saying, man, if they get the third pick, they're screwed because it's only Drake May and Caleb Williams. That conversation has changed, and you're probably cheering them differently. Still, Caleb is a one or 1A, and then the next two guys down below. So I could tell you one or the other if you really just want an answer. To me, I don't think my own answer matters enough. I want to study more of these guys and will, particularly when we get to the combine, but then you still have two months to go through. So I would just be patient, be happy, and uh, absolutely Drake May. Not a question. I would take him far and away, no, no doubt in my mind. Absolutely. Hey, there's no rules in the mailbag. I kind of like that because that's the same thing I keep coming back to where I talk to different people and I hear different opinions. I think it's pretty common that Drake May and Caleb Williams are kind of in their own tier. But Jane Daniels is pushing and there's people who still think that he deserves respect in that category. And I mean, you look at yesterday with the Lamar Jackson game where he kind of got upset that he wasn't really running enough because the Chiefs were doing so much to take away the downfield passing game. Now, I would say Jaden Daniels as a passer has more holes than the other two, which is more alarming considering how long he's already been playing the position at the college level. There's some inconsistencies where you're saying, all right, I kind of hope that you would figure out how to smooth this over with all the time that you've been playing. But again, sometimes it just takes a different coach to kind of just unlock something where it finally clicks. And more than that, Jaden Daniels' athletic ability really does put him over the top in terms of like, you know, there's that other tier where it's like Bo Nix, a similar case where, you know, he can run. He's got a good arm. There's a lot of things you like, but also, dude, you've been in college forever and you still have some glaring issues that you shouldn't have anymore. But the thing separating those two, and Bo Nix is starting to, I don't know how valid this is, but Bo Nix is starting to get first round talk. Jaden Daniels is different because he can rip off a 50-yard run when the defense has their backs turned, and that's a complete game changer. That's the kind of thing where if you're in a tight game, that can completely change the complexion. So I, I think the most important kind of discussion to have here is that you do you are set up to finally take somebody who can really be the difference maker for you at the quarterback position after, you know, Mac Jones got screwed, I think. He didn't help himself, but at the same time, I think it's very fair to say that the organization didn't help him. But these are guys where the organization doesn't have to do quite as much for them to be successful. Yeah, and I'll give you one stat. So there's actual drafts intel here for me. And this is brought to my attention by Danny Kelly, who's been on my podcast, works for The Ringer, does a fantastic job. And not yeah. because all of his comps, or at least half of them, involve some sort of Nintendo characters when he's doing his <laughs> draft guide. There's a stat called your percentage of pressures that then get converted into sacks that has turned mm -hmm. out to be more predictive than most when you're looking at how many good college quarterbacks become good NFL quarterbacks because it's an incredibly difficult evaluation. The guys at the top mm -hmm. only convert into, you know, pro bowlers or legitimate starters about 30-ish percent of the time. So when you look at that stat, when a quarterback has pressure, what does he do? And there's no better, meaning worse, example I can offer than Mac Jones this season. You saw as soon as he felt a little bit of hurry or pressure or thought he might get hit, Turnovers, sacks, throwing the ball away, just horrible decision-making. He also had one of the highest percentages of when he got pressured, bad things happened in his last year at Alabama, where otherwise the stats were sparkling. This record-setting, unbelievable offense with Alabama in 2020. And when you look at the top three guys, Caleb Williams and Drake May, who had a lot of like Superman syndrome, put the team on my back, got to take this offense where it needs to go. Their percentage, I think, was above 12 or 14%. 
That's the threshold where you do not want to be. Jane Daniels, on the other hand, whether it's because of his mobility, his decision-making, or just willingness to get rid of the ball, was in the single digits. So when you look for that stat and these three guys or a reason to hope for a third quarterback, that's a stat. How often does pressure turn into something really bad? Because you sack 80% of the time, that drive is dead on the spot. And that's one thing Derek Klassen, who does a fantastic job, he's my go-to guy on all things quarterbacks. The first trait he mentioned when I asked, like, what are the things that you look for that are most important? I thought it was going to be accuracy, something like that, was poise. It's yeah. when you get that pressure and you're working in the pocket, can you still create productive plays and can you minimize the bad ones? So that's spot on. I think at the end of the day, you know, you can work on accuracy. You can start to learn how to pick up offenses. The game slows down for a lot of guys at some point. But when you are in those high-pressure situations, especially early on, are you going to exacerbate the bad situation you're already in? Or can you sometimes just make it a net neutral where it's like, all right, no bad. You just prevented us from getting a bad play. Or can you turn it into something spectacular? And again, Jaden Daniels with his athletic ability is phenomenal at that. Moving on. What would it take for the Patriots to make a move in the draft like Houston last year to get a quarterback and a top receiver? Would this move be a positive or negative moving forward? Whew. Uh, I don't know. Some of your high noons to be shipped off to one Patriot place and downed on draft night. Like, I think it's I think it's going to be a hard sell to make that big of a swing. Now, I'll say this. If you want to get into the draft capital, you're at least talking about their second round pick at 34 you're then talking at uh, probably a future first or second. Like that move that Houston made, A, blew away all of the trade value charts in the wrong way possible when they went back up and got Will Anderson. Not a good idea, generally. Um, but for them, I would, I, if you're a Patriots fan, more like the trade into the teens because mm -hmm. everyone's talking about Marvin Harrison Jr. And I get it. Maybe they take him at three. Maybe they don't. Generational prospect. Just fit him for the gold jacket already. I would say this is a deep receiver class at the top. And if one of those guys from Washington or Texas or elsewhere falls, that might be the sweet spot. Like you don't need to go and pay, you know, a hundred dollar price for Marvin Harrison Jr. You can get maybe 80% of the production. This is all very rough estimates for say 50% of the price. When you're talking about trading up to 13 versus four or five to get Marvin Harrison Jr. So that's what I would think about. And then you don't have to give up the future first, which I think to get back that high in the draft after you've made the third overall pick uh, would definitely take. And I, I just don't know how many trades work out that well when you're surrendering future first to make that happen, save for, you know, your, your quarterbacks like Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. And even for those, like you could cite a number of them that busted <clears throat> to uh, Trey Lance or, or Bryce Young. Yep. I think this is the perfect draft for the Patriots to kind of just stay put. Like you're in range yeah. to get your quarterback. I think the second round, it's early enough that you can maybe get like a Patrick Paul. And again, it's so early, especially we've got the senior bowl this week. We still got the combine. A lot of these guys draft stock can rise and fall. But when it comes to tackle, this is a class where, which does not happen very often, like last season, the good tackles were all at the beginning of the first round. And then kind of after that, it was, all right, this guy's probably a really good guard. You could play him at tackle, but, you know, you probably don't want to. This is the time where you can get good, at the very least, developmental tackles. You could probably start for you in about a year, maybe spot start if they have to, early in the second round. And then with the receivers, we've seen it time and again. Like, it's not like tackle or quarterback where good ones only come around every so often. And when you have the opportunity to go grab them, you kind of have to. Again, they lucked out with tackle this year. Receiver. 
we've seen you can wait till the third and fourth round. The Patriots wait until the sixth round and got a guy who you can legitimately build around. Now, do I want them to wait until the sixth round again? Hell no. I think like third or fourth round might be the sweet spot where you can still get an impact player. Maybe just don't want him to be your star. But I do think that they're in position to take and reload their offense with the pieces they already have now and even going to edge rusher. I feel like that's a pretty not sneaky need necessarily, but it's a position where we maybe aren't talking about it as much because of all the holes on offense. I've been doing some of my reports on just the guys at the senior bowl, and there's so many. It's a situational pass rusher. Could probably go on day three. That's exactly what the Patriots need. So, yeah, I'm not really a fan of the idea of trading up unless they fall in love with like Drake Mayer, Caleb, and you're like, hey, this guy's good enough that we can, you know, sell off some valuable assets because he can rise all ships. I really do think you kind of stay put and see what falls to you. All right. If the Patriots are looking to change their scheme to be more like McVay or Shanahan, why would McDaniels even be considered? We kind of touched on this earlier, but if you want to expand, feel free. Sure. I, I think, you know, let's start with that assumption. If they're looking to change their offensive system, and when you look at the candidate pool, absolutely, they're looking to go in that direction or something that's totally new. Even offshoots Luke Getze from Green Bay, who obviously Matt LaFleur worked with McVay before that chain. But the more stops you make, the more you evolve, and the further you get away from the base of that tree. That being said, I would just think and go back to the point earlier about how good of a job are they doing selling this job? And then at that point, who's willing to accept it? Because Shane Waldron, Dan Pitcher, Zach Robinson have all moved on before the Patriots got to say, hey, would you want to come in for a second interview? And let's be real. They were all probably long shots individually. But if the Patriots come back around and it's, you know, a fourth year tight ends coach or Brian Flory from the Niners, who might be an exceptionally smart guy, but has only been coaching offense the last few years versus Josh McDaniels, who is a known commodity and wants to be here, like has been local for about a month. And as someone who enjoyed being here, has young kids, doesn't want to move around and now can't join Belichick in Atlanta, like that's a decision. How badly do we want to pivot from a system or do we just want to get an adult in the room to run the offense? Oh, and coach quarterbacks. And let's see how open he is. Now, Josh might not be open to working under Gerard. I don't know. I'm not pushing saying this is going to happen. I just looked at the resumes a week ago going, based on these candidates, like Waldron's gone, Pitcher's probably gone. Like Josh makes a lot of sense. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a matter of what do they want and what are the chances that they get that? Because, again, their options, as much as they're expanding the search, seem to be dwindling as far as guys who are willing to take a second to an offer. But it's, it's still early. It's going to be a big couple of days coming up. I agree. And to the point of changing the offensive system, one thing that Greg Olson said last night that I think is very, very important for Pats fans to remember is that your personnel dictates your scheme. The Rams literally have shown this over the past few years. They went from being that outside zone heavy scheme to now they're more downhill because they got bigger offensive linemen who were better off doing that kind of thing. So I think when we talk about what they're going to look like, like, you know, we try to do all these predictions and now you have a senior bowl. So you want to know who's going to be a good fit, who's someone they should be interested in. We truly don't know. But at the same time, it kind of gives you a base when you have your coordinator, but you also just want good players. You know, if they can get an athletic guard, but he's not quite as good as the Mauler, who's just more refined and probably is a better value, you get the Mauler and you make the scheme work for that guy. Obviously, you want it to be cohesive and have a vision, but I think that's an important element to add. And then in terms of McDaniels, man, I have gotten into so many just mind-blowing conversations where people act like – I understand the criticisms of Josh McDaniels, the head coach. Like, he is not very good when it comes to interpersonal relationships. Uh, the way that he kind of treats his quarterbacks, it just I, the way he runs his teams, I feel like causes teams, that even when they do have talent, they end up playing well below that level. When he's a coordinator, I think you've seen consistently, he's highly adaptable. Go back to 2016 when he had jo- with Jimmy Garoppolo, 
um, became the starter for a couple games. If you look back, Jimmy Garoppolo was running the Kyle Shanahan offense. It was a ton of boots. It was a lot of that same kind of motion. I was surprised until I went back just for some piece I was doing like a year ago. And I was like, holy crap, this is this was not the Patriots offense. It looked exactly the same as what he ended up doing in San Francisco. Then you go to Jacoby Brissett, they barely throw the ball. They're just pure running, running. And then you go to triple Cam option Newton. that that Thursday triple. night against Houston. Yeah, it was insane. We're like, literally, where is this coming from? <laughs> Pocket passer for the past what, 10 years. Mind blowing. And he did that on a shortened time frame where he didn't even know Jacoby was going to play until the week before or something like that. So and then again, you go to Cam Newton, where he started using RPOs, which if you go back, that was the only season he really used RPOs at any rate at all. I was kind of going back to see if he was going to use more with Mac Jones. But you've seen that he's adaptable. He's had success with Mac Jones. They were a top, I think it was top 10, top 12 offense with the rookie quarterback who had statistically you can poo poo Mac Jones's rookie season all you want. Oh, he's a Pro Bowl alternate. It was fake, blah, 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 whatever. They were still a respectable offense, which they have not been since Josh left. So I completely understand the concerns of him as a leader. But in terms of just coordinating and running an offense, he is probably the best option that you've got, even with McKaylee still on the board. And I would just go back to your earlier point, because it's it's such a salient one of the personnel dictates the scheme. Or it should. That's not always the case. And Patriots mm-hmm. fans will remember, because we all watched it, 2022 – they're trying to install a knockoff store brand version of the Rams offense, not understanding so much of what the Rams did stem from Cooper Cup being the best receiver alive um, mm-hmm. in OTAs, in minicamp, in training camp, in the early parts of the season. And it wasn't until they ditched that for more man black downhill running, finally married up their play action game to the runs they were actually trying to execute and ditched all the boot stuff in the outside zone that things got to work. That's because Mike Conwenu and Trent Brown and Mac Jones were better suited for that style of offense than this outside zone boot stuff that they had tried, but it didn't fit the personnel. The Patriots tried to do it anyway. Coaches make mistakes, even Bill Belichick. Um, we all know who was working under the offense at that point, but what they have will dictate what they run. And Gerard Mayo has said that. We're going to be a game plan operation. The starting point of that is what can we do, and then it's what can we do to attack our next opponent week after week after week. Great points. All right, going to get a couple more of these in. Let's see. I'll try to find something that changes things up a little bit. Uh, don't want any more Marvin Harrison Jr. talk. Um, oh, I think this is a pretty interesting one. Kind of builds off some stuff we've already talked about. In the Patriots OC interviews, what question do you think they're actually asking the candidates? Because this is something I don't I don't talk to people like you do. So a lot of my stuff is just guessing and, you know, trying to pick off with what I hear from everybody else. But, you know, you have much more insight. So what do you think is going on inside these meetings? Yeah, so I, I think it depends on the candidate, right? You know, you want to know things that you don't know. And if you're familiar with someone either coaching against them or maybe you attended a clinic where you heard them speak or you understand, uh, you know, the coaching tree they came from, you don't need to go and start day one. Like, hey, what's important? You know, like it's all very generic, as Gerard said, in these first interviews, get to know you. Like that's just like a regular first job interview. You know, people who want to hire you want to make sure that they like you in the first place because you're going to be spending a lot of hours in close quarters with that person. So I would say that they do jump into a little bit of philosophical. Where are you from? What are you about? And then it gets a little bit harder. Give me an example of how you handled a player who wanted more playing time. And if the answer is just like, shut up and listen, something tells me that's probably not going to fly with Gerard. Um, He spoke (laughs) a lot about development. That'll be incorporated. How do you develop players? How do you get the best out of them? What's an example of you doing that? So these questions, as I understand them, uh, again, this is not word for word what's being said in those rooms. But the conversations I've had about the search and what they're looking for, like it's not all that different from 
interviews you or I would have or anyone would have mm-hmm. initially. It's the second interviews we would go, okay, you know, a couple of years ago, it's a proliferation of all the Fangio tree. How are you attacking, you know, your favorite cover six, four and two beaters? Um, do you have any variations off of the three level sale concept and the sideline? Everyone runs. What are you doing to have, you know, uh, something offset of that? Was your best game plan, worst game plan? Like all this stuff that gets more into the details. But initially it's like, can I get along with you? What are you about? And then how do you get where you want to go? I want to be a fly in the room or on the wall for that second round interviews. That's the stuff that I live for. And that sounds like a lot of fun. All right. I lived on a fun question. I don't even know if either one of us, I don't have an answer to this, but I'm curious if you do. When can the Pats change their uniforms? The current ones are butt ugly, new era, new uniforms that people demand it. I agree. I am sick of whatever this it was. It was fun when it was just a color rush thing, but I honestly think they become an eyesore. I would love something new. You know what? I would just love, and I have to give credit to uh, two close friend of mine from from college. They are twins, and they care more about uniforms than maybe uh, certain relatives. Uh, Colin and Matt McDonough, who just say, "Bring back the silver pants," and we got the silver pants for a game or two this season, I believe, and they were excellent. Like I, I think that's the minor tweak that you need to make. It's much better than the all white. Like think about anyone who goes out in all white or all Navy. Like, I don't know about you. I can't pull that off. I don't know many people in my life that can pull that off, let alone giant men all lined together wearing the same thing. Like spice it up a little bit. It harkens back to like the Brady area a little bit, but clearly things are different. Like I'm with you. I'm not a fan of these uniforms. I think they're bland. I think they're basic. I don't think they say anything like we've, we've kind of gone downhill since, you know, obviously Pat Patriot love the the Bledsoe blues uh, Mm -hmm. and then really hit the sweet spot on the Brady era, but just, just bring back the silver pants. Finally, have a black coach. How about we get a little bit of seasoning on the uniforms? Yeah, that's all I'll say. <laughs> all right, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure as always. Please let the people know where they can find you and what fantastic work I already know you got coming down the pipeline. Appreciate you. So everything's on Twitter, uh, X, whatever, per usual, at underscore Andrew Callie, and you see my handle there on the screen. Otherwise, the Pats, P-A-T-S, Interference Podcast. We've really gotten rolling. We'll have Mike Giardi with updates from the Senior Bowl later this week. Uh, some current players are going to be coming on the podcast later this offseason, and we'll have lots more. A lot of rumors dumped that I uh, scuttlebutt that you hear scuttlebutt, rumors, whispers, <laughs> nuggets uh, dropped in the last episode. So you can find me there. Talk about a sore. That song is one of the wildest things I've ever heard in my entire life. If you haven't heard it, look it up, especially if you want to just prank somebody and kind of ruin their day. All right. Thank you all so much for watching. As always, appreciate you very much. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. We will see you next time. Peace, y'all.